welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, I'm in the studio for a freewheeling discussion with our program director, Dr. Jeremy Setnar, and we've got a couple questions of the week. You won't want to miss this episode. Stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Jeremy Setnar. Dr. Setnar is the program director here at OHSU for the Hematology Oncology Fellowship Program. He's also assistant professor of medicine here at OHSU. Assistant. assistant. Stings. It's a stinging insult. Um, Forever. I'll be the assistant, an assistant professor for until I retire, probably. I think that's the, that's the peak title you want when you retire. You want to go out on a high. Definitely. See if I can get demoted to a clinical instructor before I leave. Well, if the pay goes up, I'm happy to take that demotion as well, <laughs> if, the, if that were possible. Well, Dr. Setnar, it's a pleasure to have you here on Plenary Session. So, you're in the midst of something we like to call fellowship interview season. I wonder if you could, could tell us a little bit about what that's like, what is the process like, and what are you learning these days about the applicants? How many applications do you get? Let's start there. You look you look confused so I'll just About three hundred and seventy this year. For four spots. For four spots. It's pretty competitive. Yeah. And what do you look for in that first pass when you screen people strictly by step one scores? What are you looking for there? Well, I don't screen based on test scores. Uh, if somebody's failed multiple uh, USMLE tests, that's usually a red flag that mm-hmm. they're either not a good test taker or really uh, don't have the knowledge base to succeed. I see. Multiple failures. I think so. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the bigger issue is is who's going to be successful. And I think how you define success yeah. is vague. And I think as a program director, I define success as a kind of a mixture of people going into academics and people staying in community practice but being leaders, um, people kind of making a mark in whatever they do. Mm-hmm. But I think historically the parameter for success has been staying in academics. Mm-hmm. But I also recognize that I think in a rural state like this, we also need to continue to train oncologists who will stay and treat Oregonians. Um, that's part of our mission. That's going to be part of our mission. So I used to be you know, a little bit more um, influenced by whether or not people are going to stay in academics. I still am to some extent, but I think you have to be really open-minded and realize that we need good people to do a lot of different things, not only stay in academics. What are other red flags you see in these applications? What else jumps out at you and you say, hmm, that doesn't, that doesn't look good? I think lukewarm 
recommendations are a big red flag. Mm-hmm. Most recommendations, 90 to 95%, will be very glowing and say that the person was hardworking, uh, did a project with me, sat down, and within two weeks, the project was completed. I think all of those things are great, um, but in my experience, none of them really predict for a successful academic career. I think people are motivated to get things done. To get into fellowship. To get into fellowship, yeah. And then when you get into fellowship, then it's the next question of, well, what do I want to do next? And I think for people who want to stay in academics, they realize they have to continue to be pretty aggressive Mm -hmm. and um, show some grit. Mm -hmm. And that's really the key here is grit. Hashtag Duckworth. Um, It's a great book. Have you read that book? No, I watched the TED Talk. Isn't that the same thing as most uh, most nonfiction books these days? I think there's just something you can't put your finger on, and it's very difficult to know who are the people who are going to come out of it and be leaders and be productive in their career with whatever, however you define that. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I agree with you in the sense that, um, you know, I've uh, hired many people over the years to do research. I've worked with many, many people who are trainees. I've interviewed for all these things from medical school to residency to fellowship. And I guess I would say that I still haven't figured it out. You know, what is it that predicts the people who five years down the road, I'm like, wow, that person's a trailblazer um, versus um, people who, you know, are comfortable by not trying to advance in their own particular role. But let me ask you this. You're talking about the letters of recommendation. And you're saying that if somebody cannot even find three people um, who are warm about them, they're only lukewarm, that's a red flag. Because even someone like me can find, I can find three people who like me a lot. Uh, you know, so, so it really says something. You can't find three people who are willing to speak enthusiastically about you. Um, but let me ask you the flip side. Um, don't you read so many letters of rec where... You know, they're all the same. This person is great. They're terrific. They're one of the best 5%, 2%, 1%, 10% that I've ever worked with. They're great. They're go-getter, uh, self-directed, smart. I mean, doesn't it all blur together in a letter of rec, this person's good kind of soup? Yeah, absolutely. There's most of the time it's just a lot of noise, and you really can't figure out what's the true signal. Yeah. Um, I would say the program director letter usually is probably the most important because that is the person who, in theory, should probably be the most honest. I think that uh, most program directors want to be honest in those letters because we all are recipients of each other's applicants. And it's frustrating to read a letter from a program director saying this person walks on water and then they come into your fellowship and it's just not true. Mm -hmm. So it means either that that program director didn't know the applicant very well or was just completely lying, lying, which, you know, then that person's reputation's on the line. So Mm -hmm. I think most Mm -hmm. program director letters are going to have some superlatives in them, Mm -hmm. Um, not game changer, but Mm -hmm. we'll have Mm -hmm. ones in there that um, will speak a little bit more than the actual words. Mm -hmm. And so in other words, there's a lot of uh, programs have scales you know, excellent, uh, phenomenal, incredible, you know, you just keep going up the chain in terms of better and better, more powerful words. And, you know, the lowest rung, the last 10% 10 are still excellent. So everybody's still excellent in those. But, you know, that's a kiss of death to be called excellent. Right. You want to be, you know, better and phenomenal. Yeah. But I think, you know, sometimes people will say they're in the top 1%. They're the best resident I've ever worked with. And um, I'd love to add up all their their percentages to see if it holds up you know this person's worked with 352 people and i notice 
you've given out mm-hmm. 70 top 1%. So either your percent scale doesn't follow conventional units or you're exaggerating. But let me ask you this. Does it matter? Does it matter the name of the person giving the recommendation? Are you going to take more seriously um, a Daniel Von Hoff than you are going to take uh, a VP <laughs> recommendation? <laughs> I think that the applic- uh, the recommender is important, Vinay. You do. Mm. But I would say what's way more important is the content. People mistakenly assume that if you have a very famous or important person write you a letter, it's a game changer. Mm-hmm. In reality, a lot of those letters are very, very general, not specific. They say, I worked with this person for a month on some service. And I thought they were nice. I think they make a good hematology oncology fellow. Right. That's so we get a great, lot of those. Yeah. Those those are really don't help at all. Mm-hmm. So I would say you're better off getting a letter from somebody you know much better, mm-hmm. even if they're not as famous as uh, some of these you know kind of big shots around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get a, a letter of recommendation from somebody you personally know, and they say, "Boy, this person's really." an excellent can- candidate, those, those stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me ask you this. If you were a program director and you had 30 residents in your program and one of them was really below average, you know, you have got two roles, one of which is to yeah. be honest and have integrity, and the other one is to make sure that you look after your residents, yeah. right? Yeah. So which are you going to choose when that person, when it comes time to writing their program letter? What are you going to put in there that um, will advocate for the resident but not not lie Mm. i don't know what kind of language would you use that's a tough one so you're i think that makes it so tough is as a faculty member if somebody like that came to me i would probably be honest and say look you know i probably couldn't write you a really strong letter and i would encourage you to find somebody who could write you such a strong letter uh if i was a program director i'm obliged i gotta write the letter so i don't have that out I wish I lived in a different world, and I wish we could have a world where we're more honest. But understanding the world we live in in the convention, I suppose I'll be another one of those, this person is excellent, lukewarm letter in your pile, I'll just follow the convention, which is, I would write sort of the typical bottom 10% letter, that this is an excellent candidate. And yeah, but you can't say bottom 10%, right? Yeah, so you have, that's how you massage this, is you say they're a great candidate, they're really hardworking, I think they'll be you know, a wonderful person in your fellowship. Um, I guess the, the, I mean, the bigger question is that if you feel a candidate is that detrimental as a program director, do you even want to graduate him as an internal medicine graduate? Uh, did they earn that degree? And I think if they're a lethal person, they're going to kill people in their career. I think the answer is no. You have to end their career at that moment. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I'm not a program director. I don't want to be involved in these transactions, but... Well, there's, you know, ACGME has, has milestones and guidelines, Vinay. Yeah. And so that's what allows us to tell a trainee, uh, trainee, look, you're not meeting your milestone in this. And that does allow us some leverage in terms of not graduating somebody. That happens quite rarely. And you have to have very good documentation. You have to have very good rationale for that. Yeah. Rather than just some, you know, kind of flippant remark, no, you're not ready to, you know, graduate yet. Right. You know, it's it's obviously people it's have worked a, their whole lives to, to be get to this level. Right. But I think what you're hitting on, um, at least what I'd like you to hit on, is feedback. Feedback is a critical uh, skill in both receiving and giving feedback. And we in the medical profession uh, do a terrible job of that. We uh, oftentimes will let uh, somebody go unchecked because, honestly, it's just easier to do that than to actually face it and say, hey, look, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm hearing. Let's talk about this. And oftentimes there are 
two sides to every story. You always learn more when you talk to a person about a shortcoming is that you may come out of that meeting saying, well, now you understand a lot more as to why that person's reacting or behaving in that way. But I would say um, giving feedback is a really important part of Being training. a program director, yeah. The problem is, Vinay, is that we have to um, sometimes give feedback about things that you're not really sure how you can give feedback on. In other words, you know, one of the milestones that we have to look at is do um, the residents or rather the fellows have a, have they developed like a, a systems-based practice approach? Have they kind of developed a way of kind of doing their own QI, so to speak? And, you know, these there's these big global issues. I mean, I, I don't know anybody really knows how you can assess that in somebody, right, right. especially when you're on service with them for a week. I mean, how do you determine that or two weeks even, right? So right. we're asking people to make judgments about things that they probably really don't even know how to judge. And um, and then we're the program, the program directors are stuck having to really figure out from evaluations whether or not a particular fellow is meeting those milestones. I think there are definitely people out there who want to help us assess this, but as a busy clinician, as a busy researcher, that's probably not going to be very high in your priority list. Right. You know, to say, hey, can you attend this session where I'm going to give you more granular details on how you can um, more appropriately evaluate a fellow when you're on service with him or her. I mean, that's most people are going to be like, no thanks, you know, I'll 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 pass on that. I want to I want to just make a note for listeners here that um, somewhere in this office space there's a party and people are cheering intermittently and I don't think they understand what's going on in this office that we're recording a plenary session and so that the importance of um, of keeping it down on the it's floor. It's disrespectful. It's disrespectful of the plenary session. This is the number state. one uh, podcast, as I understand, in hematology oncology. Is that I believe correct? I believe that is correct, to my knowledge, and, and and based on all of the sort of analytics I can glean, that this is the premier podcast for a tiny, tiny, tiny niche. <laughs> a tiny, tiny niche. Oh, you're niche. number one there. But exactly right. You know, it's like being the number one plasma cell cancer, you know? Hmm. Yeah, you're a plasma cell cancer, and that's actually quite a rare malignancy, but you know you're number one at it, multiple myeloma. Better better to be number one than number two. Than number two, right. You don't want to be the number two plasma cell dyscrasia. True. Okay, so back to this. I, I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about, about feedback, but I actually want to talk one more second about the applications before I come to this feedback discussion. Tell me about this personal statement. Recently on Twitter, there was a guy out there who um, comes across a bit, a bit, bit poorly because he went on a rant about how so many personal statements are bland, they're the same, they're interchangeable, he can't tell one person from the next, and he was like, I want you to inspire me, I want you to entertain me, I want you to delight me, I want you to give me a David Sedaris essay, I want you to give me the kind of essay that I'm, I'm laughing out loud on an airplane like a crazy person, because that's how well-written this essay is. Okay, so how do you uh, utilize the personal statement? I think you actually, you like it. You read them all. That's one thing I know about you. Mm-hmm. I do, and I, and I would say that there are a few that stand out. Yeah. That are truly remarkable stories. That you read them all, and then you're like, oh, boy, there are three that come. Yeah. I remember one you told me, which was like, I was like, boy, this should be like a, a movie on Lifetime Channel or something. They're really just, yeah, yeah just, um, they are almost inspiring. And you yeah. think, geez, I want to bring this person here. At the very least, I want to meet this person and chat with them and yeah. see what they're like. But, you know, I would say, Vinay, you probably have more to lose than to gain to do something cutesy in a, in a personal statement. Yeah. You know, writing a haiku or some silly poem. Or, right. You know, a lot of people love to quote Emperor of All Maladies. And I would say, please stop doing that. Yeah. Okay. We know you're interested in cancer. 
We know that you uh, have a loved one or a friend or a family member that have cancer. That's very standard. You're never going to turn anybody off by saying that, but you're never going to really stand out. Yeah. So unless you have something really amazing to say, or unless you have a perspective that is unique, that really defines who you are and what you will bring to the table, I would say, keep it safe, go right down the middle with, you know, I got interested in this field because of this patient or my family member. I'm interested in research, here's what I've done. But I would say the last paragraph really, to be helpful, would say, here's what I wanna do. Saying I wanna train in a fellowship that has broad clinical training and excellent resources for uh, research and has great mentorship is is not helpful at all. Because everyone wants that. Everybody wants that, right? Yeah, and you yeah. wouldn't say, I, yeah, I really wanna go to a crappy program with no mentorship. Right, so, yeah. You know, those are not helpful at all. But if you have a specific interest in mind, clinical interest, I would say that is an excellent place to really highlight that. That will help you, especially if you are applying to an institution that values that specific skill set. That's key. And I would say, this goes back to what you were saying, how can you predict for grit? How can you um, find a factor, whatever it is, you know, um, that would predict? Mm -hmm. And I would say the number one factor that predicts for whether or not you're going to stay in academics is having a research focus or a clinical focus when you start fellowship. And that's what you believe it to be. That's that's what I would believe to be the most mm-hmm. a high, most highly predictive of staying mm-hmm. in academics. Mm-hmm. If you define success by staying in academics, mm-hmm. which which, uh, which the Lord Himself has defined it that way. I think the Lord is much more interested in developing people that are caring, that are world citizens. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, let's no, face not it, the NIH Lord. But let's yeah, yeah let's right. face yeah, it. No, let's no, face no. it that sometimes to be successful. You have to turn everything off except for that one channel, and that one channel may be a specific niche of a research interest. And that's the reality, is that we work in academic medical centers where that's uh, something that's prioritized it for, is. for, for good be- reason, right? Well, for better or for worse. I guess I would say, even though I'm being a little flippant, is that I guess I probably am more in line with your way of thinking, which is that there are more ways of success than this conventional benchmark. I run a lab and I have a half-day clinic here. Uh, that's not the only way I, con- I think about success. And so I, I, I kind of cringe when I see... I mean, in my in my opinion, when I look through these personal statements, they all say the same thing. I would like to be a translational mm. scientist. Uh, I would like to be a translational scientist, developing therapies and moving them from the bench to the bedside, and having a transformative impact on patients' lives. Which reminds me of the one person I knew in my life who had cancer, which was a very important moment in my life. And the reason I see seek out Hemonk is because the ability to be close to patients and to have so many innovative therapies. I mean, to me, that they all read the same way. That's what I read over and over again. And honestly, I, it really does kind of I, I lose the that the, the the distinction. But I might I I I think that the, one of the other ways you could flip it is maybe they should just do away with the personal statement. Poof, just get rid of it. I mean, mm. I'm not learning much from it. But but you say that there's the rare people. I guess you've shared with me some of those stories, and I was kind of blown away. Well, uh, you know, and. It, there are some personal statements that are kind of a turnoff, too. Mm. Um, and the ones that I would say specifically are ones where the grammar is really awkward. There's misspelled words. Um, that is just, a, for me, is a, is a big black mark that you're just not even careful enough to read your own personal statement or have a spell check or misspelled words. That's really, that's not yeah. good. So that yeah. might be a deal breaker if you spell a, misspell a word, especially if it's a medical word. That's even, you know a little bit more emperor frustrating. emperor of all mal- emperor is probably emperor of all maladies yeah. is probably the most misspelled words on the 
Yeah, I would imagine. But I guess. Um, but let no, me no, ask yeah, you this: yeah. well, If you were a program director, appropriate, but yeah, a fellowship program director, the host of the and podcast. one of your yeah. fellows uh-huh. wanted to go into pharma, would you consider that a success? Oh my God, I wasn't prepared for this question. Well. <sighs> <laughs> There's a lot of programs that have uh, very prestigious programs for which fellows go into pharma after a fellowship. I guess no one's going to like my answer to this question, but although I am critical of the pharmaceutical industry, and you know I am critical of them, I guess I would say, to me, putting yourself in a very conflicted position, that is an outcome that I am not happy with. Now, working for the industry, I guess I would say, there are many, many smart people who work for the industry. And you can work for the industry, I think, in an honorable way, particularly the more you are in early drug development. And you know, when I went and lectured for a couple of pharmaceutical companies, uh, by the way, without conflict of interest because I pay my own way. You uh, did eat the lunch, though. You ate the turkey sandwich. I did, it was delicious. I did not eat the lunch. And you know you what? You asked for extra turkey on your sandwich. <laughs> and, I remember this. And in fact, not only did I not eat it, I did not even drink the water that was offered. I was parched for the duration of the day and actually once I went did there you, did you breathe in the air there I did you wear a respirator is my question I I uh, no, I, you did, I not. did not you, inhale you, so I just want to <laughs> no, yeah I just all want, of these I just pharmaceutical you know. companies have very nice ventilation systems no, that no. is a conflict of interest I, when you go there and suck the air I of packed, Merck you are conflicted I packed a thermos of coffee like like an animal I drank from my own thermos of coffee. Like an animal. When I ran out of That's my- That's a smart animal that drinks from its own thermos. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an intelligent orangutan. Uh, when I ran out of coffee, I, I went parched. I was hungry. They were eating. I did not eat. But that's just my commitment to this particular issue. But uh, I did breathe their air. And but, you probably used the toilets there. Um, I don't know if I did. Did you go outside or did you hold it? I, I don't know if I had to go. It was a very brief- um, brief period of time i have to think about if i use their toilet and they're flush but um that's also a conflict yeah i mean potentially it's a potential benefit to me uh but but also this was san diego air so it was fresh air at the outset ah fresh air fresh air is the, you can't really improve upon san diego air even with the the ventilation systems but anyway back to your point i think i think you can do good work for the pharmaceutical industry um i think that the people who try to pretend that there's no conflict i think that's what bothers me okay but back to the fellowships and in fact, you know, actually, of, of fellows I've worked with, the ones that have disappointed me the most are not the ones that have gone into the industry. It's the ones who claim to be impartial mm. uh, judges of truth who are essentially spokespeople for certain products. Uh, that is really, and it shocks me that it happens at such an early stage of their career. Do you think that this podcast should be part of the curriculum so that fellows get a balanced, or at least a different view of these different clinical trials? Yes. I, I 100% agree. In fact, the only major motivation of this podcast, especially season two and these questions that we are doing, we're doing question of the week with Sven Olson, we're doing question of the week with uh, Derek Tao, um, we're doing question of the week with Audrey Tran, we're doing all these questions because we're really trying to go after the trainees and say, look, they at least hear the range of thinking on these issues. We know, you and I know, we go to these meetings in oncology, you don't hear a range of ideas. You know, you've been to my lectures on clinical trials. You probably don't hear that kind of stuff too often elsewhere. But um, I guess that, and that's one nice thing about the fellows here. I think they do get at least a little bit of flavor of that. For sure. Okay, now here's what I want to ask you about. I'm finishing up my tour of the application. Okay, because I've got questions for you too. No, this is not permitted on this podcast. And we'll be back with more of the interview. But first, let's take a break for a question of the week. 
I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Derek Tao. Derek Tao is here for Question of the Week. This is Question of the Week, inspired by MKSAP Edition. Derek, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me back. This time you're feeling more comfortable. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. A, lot, a time has passed since the last time we did a Question of the Week. Indeed. Precisely 32 seconds. <laughs> but in the podcast world, it'll be a week. So... Dr. Tao, what's in store for us this week? What do we got? So we've got a little bit more primary care flavor this time. You complained about last time being a little bit too much neurology. Yeah, I didn't see the relevance for the average primary care doctor okay. uh, having to make the call on plexing someone with um, uh, with uh, uh, transverse myelitis. I didn't see that the primary care doctor would be the one doing that too often, but what do I know? What do you got this week? So here we have a question about a 75-year-old man. He's evaluated during a routine visit. He has hypertension treated with amlodipine and losartan. Um, no other medical problems. He's active, he plays golf. On exam, uh, his blood pressure is 145 over 85, mm -hmm. pulse of 70, mm -hmm. BMI of 24, mm -hmm. otherwise normal. And your laboratory work with a BMP is normal. So according to the target blood pressure goals recommended by ACP and AAFP, which of the following would be an appropriate management? So A, make no changes to antihypertensive medications. B, increase the, lo the, the losartan dose. C, increase the amlodipine dose. D, add another agent, add chlorothalidone. Mm. And the blood pressure now is? 145 over 85. And the patient is asymptomatic. Asymptomatic. And the patient's age is what? 75 years old. 75 years old. Oh, boy. Look at this. This is a good question. This is a question that's getting at... I think I think there's going to be a diversity of views on this issue. But before we get to the answer to this question, I, there are a couple questions I have for you. So, why is this person on losartan and amlodipine? Are those are those your go-to antihypertensives? They're not bad choices. I think They're not you know, bad. oftentimes people might go with uh, hydrochlorothiazide, losartan, or acerarb. Yeah, I, um, I'd go with like a chlorothalidone or hydrochlorothiazide off the bat. We got that VA study that's ongoing. Mm -hmm. uh, I like a chlorothalidone myself, but a thiazide should be your backbone. And then if you do go ACE, why did the per why did you think they went to ARB? Well, maybe he maybe he was intolerant of ACE. Yeah, coughed. And I think a calcium channel blocker is nice sometimes when maybe he doesn't need to be seen very often. You don't want to have to monitor labs, or he prefers not to have. That's a good point. Labs monitored. That that's frequently. a good point. And maybe it was it was he was never that hypertensive. Maybe he was just kind of refractory or has They're continued to be in the 140s but not improved. Mm -hmm. And what's the dose of those medicines he's on? They don't say. They don't say the dose. But presumably something that can be increased based on right. answer choices B not, and C. Right, based on answer choices B and C. All right, well then I think the bit of gainsmanship that helps me answer this question is if one of the answers is you could increase one or increase the other, it's probably the case the right answer is to increase neither and that this patient is asymptomatic and doing quite well at the blood pressure he is at. What is the answer, Derek Tao? So the answer choice is A. Yep, make no changes. Make no changes. And what justification, what's the justification go like? Well, ultimately, I think, I'm not sure if this question is going to be reflective of what would actually be on boards, but, you know, in this learning uh, environment of MixApp, they're trying to get you to better understand ACP and AAFP's guidelines. and. Mm -hmm. Their guidelines are that if the patient's older than 60 years old, mm -hmm. um, don't start treating their blood pressure until it gets to be above 150 over 90. And so your, your goal is to reduce the stock to less than 150. I see. So that's their target. Yeah. And they do mention that that stands in contrast to um, 
American College of Cardiology and AHA. Which say what? If they haven't fainted, keep lowering that blood pressure. <laughs> they are more aggressive. They say um, your target is a systolic less than 130. Mm-hmm. Um, for any ambulatory elderly patients above 65 that are kind of otherwise well. Oh, that's what they say. One Less than 130. Yep. And oh, if, if it's over 65 and they have more comorbidities or more of a limited life expectancy, then that's for clinical judgment kind of a patient preference discussion too. Hmm. I see. So I think... I think the relevant trial here to talk a little bit about is Sprint. But before we talk about Sprint, I just want to cite the recent meta-analysis by Jessica Weiss and colleagues in the Annals of Internal Medicine. This is done by Devin Consagra from here, from OHSU. This is the benefit and harms of intensive blood pressure treatment in adults age 60 or older. And this is a systematic review of randomized control trials. that used multiple databases, and they found 21 randomized control trials comparing blood pressure targets or treatment intensities and three observational studies that assessed harms. And here's what they find. Treatment to the current guideline standards for BP less than 150 over 90 substantially improves health outcomes in older adults. There is less consistent evidence, largely from one trial targeting SBP less than 120 millimeters mercury, that lower BP targets are beneficial for high-risk patients. Lower BP targets did not increase falls or cognitive decline, but are associated with hypotension, syncope, and greater medication burden. And that one trial is SPRINT. And you're going to tell us, what did they do in the SPRINT trial? Uh, ultimately, Sprint um, looked at whether or not a systolic blood pressure of less than 120 was better than a, uh, a goal of less than 140. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of those two treatment pr- approaches. Yeah. And um, they found significant benefit. Oh, the, and these were with patients with uh, high-risk cardiovascular disease but no diabetes. Um, and ultimately, they found that there was benefit, mortality benefit, with a uh, Uh, SBP less than 120. Mm -hmm. Um, And although they shot for less than 120, the mean systolic blood pressure achieved in the intervention group was 121, and it was 136 in the standard treatment group. Um, And the intervention was stopped early after 3.2 years because of a improved primary composite outcome and even improved all-cause mortality was significantly lower. And thus, many people use SPRINT to hang their hat on as justification for lower blood pressure targets in this group. And they might have said, crank up that antihypertensive therapy for our question. But there was some controversy. I remember reading about yeah. the blood pressure measurement. There was a lot of controversy. There's a lot this, of controversy. With this paper. So, I can't remember all of it, but I do remember it stood out to me like how they measured the blood pressures. Uh-huh. I think they did a very special, like automated uh, blood pressure cuff. Right. They didn't do it in the in the standard way where you know um, somebody who's part of the healthcare team uh, takes the blood pressure at arm height with uh, with the blood pressure cuff. Yeah, they had patients sit in like an isolated, quiet, dark room for, for a five few minutes. minutes. Yeah. yeah, and let their blood pressure fall. Right. And I think that I don't recall actually. You'll have to tell me, but like. Um, I think that the blood pressure cuff could take three measurements without anybody even coming back into the room to push start. Mm-hmm. It was just timed. It was like an un... Um, on a loop. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that other studies show that that clearly leads to a lower blood pressure result than had you used conventional metrics. And thus, all of these kind of targets might be need to adjust for the particular way in which they're collecting the blood pressure reading. Um, and other people have said that this their method is better, but the question is not whether or not one method is better or worse, it's whether or not the method is consistently applied across all the studies so we can kind of compare apples to apples. And that's one good bit of, of criticism. Now what about the way in which they achieve target blood pressure in the standard arm, in the control arm? Do you know this little quirk of the study? I think it was just a physician 
decided yeah what medicines yeah. yeah but i'll tell you the little i'll tell you the little thing that made a lot of people mad this is mark pfeffer from brigham and women's hospital and he wrote the letter to the editor that really kind of hit the nail on the head right at all report the sprint trial by focusing on blood pressure levels rather than antihypertensive agents this trial follows a rich heritage of government-funded non-commercial randomized trials on hypertension that address major public health issues this is part of the feedback sandwich derek you give him a nice slice of bread off the top make him feel very happy uh, the clear difference in outcomes, including lower rates of death among patients who are randomly assigned to intensive treatment than among those assigned to standard treatment, underscore the major impact for implementing low blood pressure targets for the appropriate population. We're still biting through that piece of bread. But now you get to the middle of the feedback sandwich, and as you've been a part of feedback, you don't like the middle, do you, Derek? I'm more of a fan of the middle. Yeah. Oh, you don't? You like? Oh, yeah, you're, you're willing the, to take the punch. the meat is and the, the good stuff is. Uh-huh. But in a feedback sandwich, that's where you take a punch to <laughs> the midsection. Yeah, it can be and, harsh. And, yeah, it can be harsh. And here he goes. Achievement of a difference of 15 millimeters mercury between patients who are randomly assigned to the intensive arm and patients who are randomly assigned to the control arm was central to testing the author's hypothesis. We'll agree to that. But their design article specifies that in the standard treatment arm, which is the control arm, antihypertensive therapy should be withdrawn in a patient whose systolic blood pressure is less than 130 millimeters mercury on any occasion or less than 135 millimeters mercury on two consecutive visits. Since the withdrawal of antihypertensive therapy in asymptomatic patients in whom these pressures are achieved is not necessarily considered to be standard, interpretation of the overall trial results could be affected by knowledge of how often and how many patients this non-standard action was taken taken. And then the authors reply, Pfeiffer asks how often we had to lower blood pressure medicines in the control arm. Answer, 87% of participants required at least one reduction in the dose of medication to maintain systolic blood pressure in that range. Withdrawal of medication was required in less than 7.5% of participants. Such adjustments, although not standard in clinical practice, were required to test the sprint hypothesis. Ooh. Wait, uh, reduction in 80-some percent? Yes. And then what was the next number? With reduction With in nearly 90% and withdrawal in like 8%. Withdrawal of a medication entirely. Yeah. Wow. So that's the flaw, I think, of the study. Because what you're really doing here is anytime you put a lot of people who are hypertensive, 160, 155 systolics, you know, on antihypertensive medicine, you're going to pull the whole bell curve over. And what you're really asking is... What should the doctor in clinic shoot for? Should the doctor shoot for 150, 140, or less than 120? And if you happen to shoot for 140, and you put somebody on a whiff of amlodipine, or you know a middle tier, a mid dose of amlodipine, or, or losartan, or lisinopril, or something like that, and you happen to achieve 135 or 130, and are you gonna are you gonna back off the medication? And you ask, oh, how do you feel? The patient says, I feel fine. I'm taking, a, I'm taking a medium dose of one of these antihypertensives. I feel fine. My blood pressure is 125, 127, 130, 135. You know, they're the, they're the one edge of the curve. Other people maybe, you know, still 140 or something like that. Um, when you back down on those patients, you're doing something very not standard. I mean, it's not what you would do in clinical practice. And that group of people might be people who are deriving a great benefit from, the fat, from that antihypertensive, that their blood pressure ha just happened to fall lower than the average person. And that group, by taking this non-standard action, might have an increased cardiovascular risk or an increased risk of death. So the SPRINT trial doesn't really ask the clinical question of, you have a patient in your clinic, what should I shoot for? Knowing that if I happen to get a little bit past what I shot for, I'm not gonna go crazy if they feel fine. It asks the question of, what should the target be in a very contrived experiment where you adjust whatever it takes to get them right in that target zone. And that's why I think it's kind of a useless study. Um, and I think 
There are a number of people on Twitter who have bashed it over the head for this. There are a bunch of people who say that this is fine, this is answering the important question. I think they're missing the point, which is that you wouldn't do this in clinical practice and therefore it is really not answering the clinical practice question. So I put Sprint in the bucket of $100 million studies that have no real use. What is the ACCAHA kind of response to that criticism? The response to that criticism is that if we did not um, force people to dose down these medications, we wouldn't have had a difference in the two arms. One arm would be like 125 and one would be 121, and, and the trial would be negative, but it wouldn't be negative because we answered the question. It would be negative because there was no meaningful difference between the two arms. And so we had to dose them down to get some spread in the blood pressure. I think the other way is you could have just taken like any average clinic in this country where yeah. our patients are not often dropping that low yeah. and randomize them to less than 150 and less than 120 and see what happens in, in a very broad pragmatics design study, which should still probably be done someday. One last thing on Sprint. I think anyone who really wants to get into Sprint should talk to Mark Friedberg, who is a researcher in Boston, Rand. And Mark Friedberg says this about it. JAMA tweets, Sprint is an important study that should have substantial influence on future clinical practice. Mark Friedberg quote tweets JAMA. Nope. Sprint should not influence clinical practice. The standard care arm, too dissimilar to true standard care. Somebody replies back, really? I feel like Sprint was very informative. It has affected my practice. Mark Friedberg fires back. Did your practice resemble the Sprint control arm? If not, then how can you be sure active control arm didn't drive effect? Sprint control protocol is like trialing an analgesic where you punch the control patients every few weeks, Mark Friedberg, or trialing a primary cancer prevention agent where you give the control arm cigarettes. Somebody says, that seems a tad hyperbolic. So, and then he writes back, so equally valid interpretation is don't do our control protocol. For docs already avoiding insane hypertension management, no change in practice. I think he hits the nail on the head. Sprint proves that their intervention arm is better than their control arm. But as Mark Friedberg puts it, that control arm is, quote, insane hypertension management or, quote, giving someone cigarettes or, quote, punching them every few weeks and that is what it is because if you take somebody and give them a medium dose of an antihypertensive drug and they happen to fall to 135 you wouldn't touch it you just wouldn't touch it and so if the fact you are touching it you're playing with that person's health in a way that that person may be sort of um more likely to have an event of interest in driving the outcome in the study rather than really answering the question of what should i have been aiming for mm-hmm. you know i think that's the kind of f- flaw of the study well derek Tao, thanks so much for coming back on Question of the Week. You'll be back more for future Questions of the Week. Thanks for having me. And having tackled that question, let's go back to the interview. Um, So so on my tour of the application, so you've taken us through how you look at test scores, how you look at um, program director letters, um, how you think about personal statement. I want to know about the other components of the application. Grades, how do you think about grades? How do you think about the curriculum vitae? How do you think, think about the activities that they list that they do? Well, in Hemonk, and in this program, we get a lot of applications from people who have done a tremendous amount of work in the yeah. community and, you know, mentoring and teaching. And so, honestly, it's really hard to differentiate somebody who's exceptional from somebody who's done the bare minimum. You know, most people's CVs are full of things dating back to undergraduate when they were a TA in a class. And, you know, they, they went to Botswana for a month to, mm-hmm. you know, to uh, inoculate children. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a number of things that people put in there that are impressive but it's becoming so common it's hard to differentiate and distinguish who are people that are really that that is an important part of their 
DNA, that that will make them more uh, attractive as an applicant. You know, I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, this field, we're pretty blessed that we, generally speaking, um, attract a lot of very caring, good people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think people go into this field because they want to get rich or because they want to give chemotherapy. You know, they do it because there's a personal connection. Um, And I think that's really, really valuable. Um, And I think that's one reason why um, these applications have a, a lot of extracurricular activities. People have done a tremendous amount. So I would say that that helps, but it's definitely not a deal breaker one way or another because there is a lot of um, things people have done since undergrad or even before then. Um, but I think, you know, what are the ones, what are some of the things that show a characteristic or that shows that person has charisma, that has that ability to push ahead when there's a challenge? You know, you and I have talked about the value of having a, an idea. You know, at the end of the day, that's how things move forward, right? Is having an idea um, that's different than somebody else's and trying to figure out whether or not your idea will help anybody. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, you cannot get that from an application. Right. You know, but that's really, really critical. You know, who are the people that are going to sit down and review the literature, figure out what are the unmet needs, what's feasible and possible in terms of answering a question, you know, do, if you want to do a 50-year prevention study using some, you know, new targeted therapy, you know, that's going to be very challenging. So that's where um, you really don't know what you're getting in terms of somebody's creativity and ability to problem solve and to push ahead and say, you know what, this is a valuable question. I'm not going to just stop at the first roadblock I see. I'm going to actually, you know, keep pushing ahead. I mean, that's really important, you know, and. I haven't figured out who, you know, who are those people. Mm-hmm. Now let's come back to your conversation about feedback. It's a very interesting topic. Um, so I guess we'd say we let our fellows into the world and you let them be uh, uh, under the tutelage of uh, your solid tumor colleagues, your hematology colleagues, and to a very small degree, your hemolignancy colleagues, because their footprint there is small. And, uh, and, and you also give them feedback. In fact, a lot of people don't give feedback themselves. They email the program director feedback. Mm. That's the way you want to do it. Because mm. why do you dirty your own hands when you have a trigger man that you can hire? And, and that person is you, Dr. Setnar. That is true. That's, a very, that's an excellent point. Why give somebody any feedback and make them feel bad when the program director could be, that, uh, could be the bad cop? It's a good exactly. cop, bad cop thing. Yeah. And um, what I would say is when that fellow comes in and talks to me, uh, I would say, you know, you got feedback from, you know, Vinay Prasad. Mm-hmm. He's a vicious person. He wrote all this horrible stuff about you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in reality, I know you're not like that. So mm-hmm. I just kind of wanted to clarify, you know, some of these comments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and again, I would really, you know, emphasize the fact that the person who gave the feedback is is, is such a weak-minded person <laughs> that they can't actually speak to the, uh-huh. to the to the fellow in person and tell them what their thoughts so you, are. So you say you throw them under the bus. Absolutely. But, but to be fair, you will acknowledge for the purpose of the recording that I never tell you feedback this way. Which way? I never have emailed you about a fellow. I just want you to state for the record. I cannot confirm nor deny that. Yeah. I believe I've I'd never. have to go back and, and do you can an check, extensive You can check your records. Search. You can check your records, but you'll find there's no record. Because but I, too, was not. I don't, give, was I don't an, give feedback that way. I, I understand. And, and, again, this is one of the things that I was saying earlier is, look, it's hard to give feedback about some of these really granular milestones, right? So oftentimes people will just give very general feedback. Oh, yeah. they did a good job. Or, oh, they didn't uh, – 
they didn't know enough about their patients. You know, like that that that's okay, uh, but it would really be good to have much more specifics and examples are really really important because yeah. So what do you like to tell them? Yeah, what what kind of feedback do you like to give when somebody finishes a day in your clinic? Well, I you know it's I don't give feedback after one day in clinic. I think one thing you could do is you could certainly say at the beginning of a week of service, hey, um, you know, Joe uh, or Sally, whichever, whoever your fellow is, you know, what would you like me to look for this week? Are there some specific things that you would like Mm -hmm. me to really kind of focus in on? Is it your patient interactions? Is it your ability to be the team leader? Is it your ability to kind of know the right and the wrong treatments so you can really set the stage early on for okay what do you want me to look for and oh by the way at the end i'm going to evaluate that on you on that mm-hmm. and i think people in my view and i've heard this i don't know if this is any data behind this but i think people generally speaking want to get better and they want to have feedback you know when you depersonalize it and not make it anything about the person but rather things that they are doing or behaviors that they can change that's very valuable information. If you give them feedback like, oh, you're lazy and, you know, um, you know, the nurses don't like you, I mean, that that's not helpful at all. All that does is make the person feel extremely bad. And that doesn't help or change anything. So it's a very complicated thing. And I wish I could say that I'm an expert at it. I'm not. It's still awkward and I don't like doing it. Um, kind of like ice skating. But mm-hmm. every once in a while, you got to get out there and you just got to give it a shot. And if you fall down, you fall down. And... If, if it goes really well, it can be actually a very um, positive thing for not only the person getting feedback, but also the person giving feedback. It's actually kind of invigorating to say, oh, my goodness, I just gave somebody feedback. And two weeks later, they came back and said, you know what? You were right. And I really appreciate that. What if um, what if somebody did a cluster randomized trial across fellowships and they assigned 25 fellowships your feedback recommendation, the other 25 it was a, a hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil kind of fellowship where you don't even talk to it. You don't talk about it. We just move on with life. And what if we followed up all these residents a year later and did some sort of impartial assessment of their clinical skills? How would you feel if this little study found that there was no benefit to providing feedback? It was all an elaborate theater that didn't change outcomes. Well, you wouldn't feel good about that. I, I wouldn't feel good about it. I guess I wouldn't be shocked either, though. You wouldn't be shocked either, huh? That's I what wouldn't I be shocked. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it. You know, I I think I, I understand what your point is. Is that you know feedback really may not actually move the bar. Um, but I, I would say if you give very specific feedback, um, sometimes it does change something. Now, obviously, there are some people who are very strong-willed and mm-hmm. we're not gonna change no matter what you tell them. It takes three full years to break their spirit in fellowship. And you may never break their spirit. Yeah, you may never, they may yeah. just say, that's uh-huh. who I am, I'm never gonna uh-huh, change that. Uh-huh. I know, I don't like that. There are some people that just the way they are. I know, I can I can imagine such a person. Let me ask you this, Dr. Setner, have you gotten feedback that changed your behavior? It's rare that I get feedback, but absolutely, mm-hmm. I have. Can you think Believe it or not, um, I used to be kind of goofy. <laughs> and. Um, uh, I've received feedback that, you know, sometimes when you're in a leadership position, mm-hmm. such as a fellowship program director, I that's see. not always the way you want to act. I see. Sometimes you have to be serious, like we are right now. Like we are right this minute. Like you are always are in clinic. So I've taken it to heart. But, you know, I'm the type of person that is looking for feedback and is willing to make changes. There are other people in this room who may not feel the same way when people give them feedback. They may say, look, I've got my plan. I've got my shtick. I've got my thing i'm just gonna plow ahead i'm doing what i'm gonna do you do you as the, as they say now you do I, you right like that's that's uh, basically like look 
no matter what I tell you, you're just going to go and do you. So just do you and just leave me alone. That's what I'm afraid it happens with a lot of feedback. But I myself, how can I put it? I guess I would say I, I, I hear feedback. I take feedback. I sometimes move in the direction of feedback. may not get there all the way on day one. But I'm moving in that direction. I move in the direction if I hear it consistently. But I think feedback is tricky. But I, but I will say one thing about being a fellow and getting feedback I think it can be very tough when you have attendings who have erratic preferences. One attendant wants it one way, one wants it the other way. They all want to give you feedback, and here I am realizing they don't know the other attending likes it the opposite way. And then I get, you know, kind of annoyed. That is frustrating for the trainee. Yeah. You know, they have to constantly adjust to whoever's evaluating them. But again, that's why I think at the beginning of a rotation, it's always reasonable, and I should do this more too, is to say, hey, what are some things that we really want to look at this week? Um, and that, I think that really does kind of set the agenda, you know, mm-hmm. so it's not just some really weird, vague feedback at the end of the week that makes no sense. And you get some statement that comes out of nowhere if you're the trainee. You're like, I don't know what they're talking about, you know. Um, so I think one of the other things that needs to be discussed, Vinay, is as a fellow, how do you give feedback? So what happens if you're on service with an attending who, you know, has very bad patient skills, uh, tells you things that are just wrong, when it comes to evidence-based medicine or things like that uh, are inappropriate with nurses, what do you do? I'm going to preemptively tell you one of the problems is is that when fellows give feedback, sometimes, well, it's anonymous, in air quotes, um, for the television audience, you saw that, but for those on the radio, you didn't. Um, sometimes the attending can figure out who wrote those comments. So this really creates this environment where, truthfully, the trainees are not really at, at liberty to give really honest feedback, mm-hmm. especially if you're an attending who's only attends once or twice a year, and then you get a, you know, a, um, an evaluation two weeks later, I, I don't think anybody's going to wonder who wrote that evaluation. Right, right. That's a major problem, too, yeah, right? Because then we have behaviors and things that go unchecked as the faculty, right? But, but then we never hear any feedback either. And then, then there's the issue of retribution. The fellow may say, geez, if I say, you know, Dr. Prasad, you were totally checked out during rounds, you're looking at your Twitter handle, you were, you know, looking at your email the whole time, I felt like you really weren't engaged in my teaching. He or she may feel like you are really, uh, that they're not at liberty to do that because you do have an ability to influence their career. You could you write a bad evaluation and, and, you know, that could be in their quote unquote permanent record. Mm. But, you know, uh, that's a real problem. That's a real problem. And I, I guess, don't have a good solution to that. But I, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think that is the, that is a big problem. But I guess my experience, what the way that problem manifests is fellows will come into my office and they may not have documented this. They may not have told you, but they'll tell me, hey, you know, I was on service with so-and-so. And I, I guess a lot of people come to tell me these things because they know I care a lot about evidence-based medicine. And so when they see these kinds of deviations, they're like, did you know that such and such is doing, so, so-and-so is doing such and such, and so this was happening over here, and, and the people are doing this, and this other hospital I went to, and all these things. People always people always love telling me these things. And so I say, oh, I didn't know that, or uh, sometimes even my jaw drops. But And then sometimes they go and you tell you. Mm-hmm. And that and there there may even be, you know, there's always faculty members whose reputation is not being strong clinically or not taking being clinic a, a good clinician seriously. You know, um, you we're well, I guess we're both now lung cancer experts. But even though I, I you know you're a lung cancer expert, but I you know you know I care a great deal about trying to know it all in hematology oncology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and and to some degree, that is kind of helpful when you attend on some of these services where you really do need to know a lot of stuff about outside. Definitely. Yeah. 
And uh, but a lot, it's very easy to fall into a trap of just knowing one disease and then going on service and seeing people with another disease and and making decisions that people who know about the disease would not make. Um, and I think for fellows are the are, are the first you know bear witness to those kind of choices, and they come and they come and tell me these things. They must come tell you these things. Yeah, they don't talk to me too much about that. Oh, really? But I, <laughs> they must think I'm yeah just as bad as the rest. But I would say. You know, when in doubt, it's always reasonable to talk to your program director or the leadership in your pro- in your program mm-hmm. about this. And I would caution you and all the all the three listeners here and say, look, whatever you put in email may be uh, retrievable down the road. So always be careful what you put in an email. I would say if you have something that's a very sensitive topic, I would say always it's good to talk to the person. Uh, you know, again, usually a program director or somebody in GME, there's almost always these kind of safe zones, these people that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. should be listening with a very, you know, unbiased ear. And 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 if it's a really serious accusation, sometimes um, those things need to be written down. But I would say be careful with what you put down in, in, in an email. I always start every year by giving you a box of flip phones that I purchased at Walmart. And then three times a year, we, we would break the flip phone and we'll move to the next one. Mm-hmm. Really don't want a record of things. No, I but I think that's Center. still uh, on this internet. I think there's still. I think that's still traceable. Mm-hmm. There's so a World Wide Web. We will. We will meet on a windy hilltop, um, and and that's when we'll have our meetings. We could do that. That's true. There just have to be. Yeah, that's true. We could do that, or in an alley, in a dark alleyway. Yeah, you, know, you just yeah. cross and you know exchange a briefcase, and you know here's your evaluation. Here's your emails. Yeah. And we'll be back with more of the interview. But first, let's take a break for a question of the week. I'm back with Sven Olsen for question of the week. This is the Hematology Oncology Boards Edition, inspired by, but in no way related to. Dr. Olsen, it's great to have you back in the studio. Thank you. I've got another pure oncology question. We're just avoiding hematology like the plague for the time being. Classical hematology. But you know what? All these pure oncology questions, I'm sure there's a question in the back of your mind, which is, do I prophylax this patient with a DOAC? <laughs> or what is a reason not to give them IV iron right now? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what do you got for us? Okay. So I have a 54-year-old female, and you see her for initial consultation. She has a Recently diagnosed left breast invasive ductal carcinoma. It is ERPR negative, HER2 negative. She has a family history of carcinoma significant for paternal uncle diagnosed with lung adenocarcinoma at age 50 and a paternal aunt with colon adenocarcinoma diagnosed at age 45. So the question is genetic testing is recommended based on which of the following? A, paternal family history of carcinoma under the age of 50 and younger B triple negative breast cancer diagnosis in a patient under the age of 60 C invasive ductal carcinoma histology in a patient under the age of 60 or D paternal aunt diagnosed with colon adenocarcinoma at age 45 oh boy so you've got a 54 year old woman with triple negative breast cancer and she's got the uncle, her dad's brother with lung cancer at age 50, and she's got the aunt with colon cancer at 45. And you're saying, which of these buys this patient genetic testing? The family history of carcinoma under the age of 50, um, 50 or younger, the triple negative breast cancer diagnosis in somebody under the age of 60, the IDC diagnosis in somebody under the age of 60, 
the paternal aunt diagnosed with colon adenocarcinoma at the age of 48. Those are choices. I guess I'd say it's easy to eliminate the IDC under the age of 60. That's not going to buy you genetic testing. Um, the paternal family history of a lung cancer under 50 or younger, I think that's also neither here nor there. Uh, the paternal aunt diagnosed with colon adenocarcinoma at, under the age of 50, again, I don't think that is enough to buy you genetic testing, um, even for familial colon cancer. It's not a first-degree relative. Um, and it's also, if anything, the, the recommendation there is just to sort of screen those people a little bit sooner if they have first-degree relatives. Well, you would argue that maybe that aunt should be tested for Lynch syndrome. She's 45. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Separate yeah. question. Separate question. Okay. So the aunt itself, yeah. Okay. Well, now that you're, you've opened the genetic testing bonanza, <laughs> yeah, the aunt perhaps that somebody, well, I guess the first thing I would do, Dr. Olson, is I would do MSI on the tumor tissue itself. Correct. Yeah, of course. I learned that from a smart a smart fellow on a power boards <laughs> question. Okay. So the answer here is the triple negative in under 60. And I think it's because a bunch of experts sat around and said that, yes, they should be tested. What do you think? You're correct. And to be honest, this one I picked because I feel like I see these on our in-service exams and you simply have to know the list of indications for these genetic tests. So for Lynch syndrome, for, you know, BRCA mutations, things like that. And I don't know a better way to memorize it other than you just have to know the table. So maybe that makes this a poor question, but no, I, don't know. I thought there, it was it, good to go and over. Is there a single table, though? That's the problem I have. There's not a single table. Well, there is a big, big page on NCCN that has all of these, and I thought I would highlight the ones. Uh, this is just a, a fraction of them, but in a patient with breast cancer, there, is, there are indications to test. Then there's a whole separate list of indications for people without breast cancer, but a family history and such. But for a patient like this who has a new diagnosis of breast cancer, any breast cancer diagnosed at 50 years or younger should have testing. Anyone triple negative under the age of 60, as in this case, should get testing. Two breast cancer primaries should get testing. And then breast cancer at any age and, and then there's a bunch of family history indications. I can go over them if you want, but they just kind of get into the weeds of uh, different cancers in your family. I think the highlight, the, what I want to highlight here is that if you have breast cancer at any age, and you have relatives who have cancer, the ones they want you to care about are breast, ovarian, and pancreatic. And that makes sense because that's all the BRCA mutated. Yeah, kind of I know. That's ones. what you so think about here. When they talk about colon cancer in the aunt and then the lung cancer in the uncle, I think those are kind of red herrings. Yeah, so I think you not. have to know the ones that fit together. So I guess what I would say is, I guess I would say if I think about the boards, because I also don't like these questions a lot. Um, if I think about the boards, like some of the questions on the boards are like, this is the answer because like this is based on a phase three randomized control trial. And we all know that study and like you need to know that study. I like those. Some of the questions on the boards are like, um, it's just, you know, very prudent that this patient has got this bad symptom. You would do this test to work them up. Or, you know, that, that's a very prudent thing. Some of the questions on the boards are like, oh, this really smells like <laughs> Fraumeni or um, hereditary gastric cancer or, you know, BRCA mutation. Like you got the really strong family history. In that case, you're like, of course, you're going to get genetic testing. Mm -hmm. But then there are questions like this on the boards, which is really like, what? 
to a bunch of experts in 2019 based on largely very gray, light gray to dark gray data, think is the cutoff for reasonable screening. And it's very likely 10 years from now, they're going to drop it to 55 or raise it to 65, you know, that they're going to change the rules under which we would consider germline genetic testing, I guess, on this patient. I'd love to be in a room like that when they actually decide these things and just see what it's like. You want to be a KOL is what you're saying. <laughs> a key <laughs> no, opinion no, no. leader. I just want to see it. I want I to be a fly on the wall. I would love to, too. But I have a feeling that those folks are, are not going to be happy to see me around uh, with my <laughs> notebook and recorder uh, in these meetings. So, um, well, thank you, Dr. Olson, for coming on the podcast for a really good, thought-provoking question of the week. My pleasure. And having tackled that question, let's go back to the interview. So as, as a, a non-goofy, serious program director, which, which you are, um, so, so here you are in the process. You're in the midst of interview season. Now let's talk a little bit about interviews. What, um, you know, yeah, you, you just, your face went through a series of expressions that I wish we could have captured for the audience. But yeah. I guess, I guess w- the purpose of this interview was I want to get a sense of what the application process is like now in the middle of the season when it's fresh in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But we've strayed from topic enormously. And we've had many rude noise dis- disruptions, including your ringing cell phone previously. Uh, but so my question about interviews. So, what, when you, so you get your 300 applications. You offer interviews to 50 40? Mm-hmm. About 40-ish. 40-ish. Um, how many people accept the offer? High percentage? Most accept the offer. Um, sometimes people will cancel at the end just due to the reality of the situation is that mm-hmm. they don't want to travel out to Portland if they're on the East Coast and if they're not really confident that this would be a program for them. And then you interview everyone yourself. Correct. Dr. Nagel does as well. Correct. And uh, and then uh, they get a smattering of faculty that may sort of fill their their needs or their interests. Yes. What um, what what impresses you in the interview? What what do you look for? What 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 turns you off? What um, what scares you? Well, the the interview itself, um, as you've told me, and as I've read, uh, are generally speaking um, very poor predictors of whether or not that person will be successful or whether or not they'll be have issues you know it's it's truly a half an hour when both parties are on their best uh, behavior and it's very difficult to think of questions that would really help uh help you decide whether or not this is a person who's going to step up when the chips are down or whether or not this is somebody who will um ultimately um, do poorly in fellowship because either they're just not ready emotionally, they don't have the physical stamina, or, um, you know, for a variety of different reasons. You know, it's really, really, really hard to tell. So a lot of times people will say, well, I'm just looking to have a conversation with the applicant. You know, can they hold a conversation? Are there somebody that I would want to round with on the weekend? Mm. Just, you know, me and this person, you know, going across the bridge to both hospitals and rounding for six hours together. Is this somebody you'd want to, you know, be with? You know, I think that's a, um, I think that's a reasonable thing to 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 uh, ask. I think, you know, having a a plan in walking into an interview as to what are the most common questions you're likely to hear today mm-hmm. is a really important thing to think about. And mm-hmm. you know, the common questions are, you know, what do you want to do five years from now, ten years from now? What do you want to do when you graduate from fellowship? 
Um, but you know what's really important to me is, and I ask most of the applicants this, is what's meaningful to them? What gives them pleasure? Mm-hmm. What what are they passionate about? You know, I mean, think about you. You're passionate about podcasts and Twitter feeds and evidence-based medicine. <laughs> and I wonder, you know, if I were to go back in time and interview you uh-huh. when you were um, – at Northwestern and, you know, about to go to fellowship, I would really be interested to see what your interview was like, you know, were you really interested? I mean, what was, what would, what was that like? You know, were you really passionate? Were you outspoken? Were you no. uh, a very opinionated like you are now, or no. were you a little more subdued? And did you kind of just, you know, toe the line and just say, Hey, look, of course, you know, so, of you know, that, so it's, it's really hard to know. I guess I'd say that's an interesting thing because I guess it makes me think of a few things. One, somebody recently asked me, like, where do you see yourself in five years, where is this or ten years? And I was like, oh, my God. I, I was like, oh, this is the – I don't get asked the interview questions anymore because I'm past the point in my career when anyone asks me any questions like that normally. Um, and I, I didn't have a great answer because I was like, you know, you think I think five years down the road? I'm thinking next week, you know? I'm thinking yeah, to like – Yeah, I'm really not thinking – Next dinner. Next mm-hmm. Next travel, next, uh, you know, whatever. I'm not thinking that far ahead. And ten years – who knows? Who would have guessed? And I also think back five years ago, um, you know, I, when I started on faculty here, I don't think I was using. T- I think that was like start when I started using Twitter that much. I mean, I wasn't. It wasn't an interest of mine when I was even applying here for. Yeah. I mean, I remember we met when I was. Um, yeah. I applying for a faculty job in 2014. It was yeah. five years ago now, and uh, I wasn't on. I don't. I was on Twitter, but I, it wasn't certainly something I was using, and uh, there was no talk. I didn't even know what a podcast was. Yeah. So how do you predict for that? You know, when you, you don't. don't even know if the technique is. How do? Yeah, it's very hard to know, right? It's very hard to know. I guess I'd say you know people always ask me. I, I distinctly remember being a third year medical student, and I remember thinking 100 percent that I was like headed for private practice. Um, yeah, you know, because I don't work in a lab, and I was interested in laboratory research. Yeah, and um, and I and then I knew I was going to do internal medicine. And, you know, I liked medical education a little bit because uh, yeah. I was working with Adam and stuff. And then um, and I w- and then the only time I got into research was on the back end because I, I started being a clinician trying to answer questions like, oh, you know, I'm in the CCU and we're doing X, Y, and Z on these patients. Um, what's the data for that? Uh, I was trained in University of Chicago to, like, start asking what's the data for that. And then I started trained to, like, look it up. And I'd look it up. i say, this data is, like, not so good. Yeah. You know, and so then I was like, okay. And after a while of reading things, I was like, you know, we really need to, like, maybe write something about this because I see, like, this is not good data. And, you know, people don't seem to be aware of that. So then I started writing some articles. And then I think when I went into fellowship was kind of the the turning point of, like, you know, that's the other thing about research. We always tell people to do research, do research, do research. But um, you really, it, there's kind of like a, a threshold. You pass a certain number of articles, and then one day you go from, you know, being somebody who's not a researcher to being a researcher just because you've done 25 articles or 50 articles in, in a certain space. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was always evidence based medicine slash policy space. And so when I got to a certain article threshold, then people said, oh, he's the kind of person who does these kind of articles. So I think when I applied here for faculty, I had, you know, I was largely known for the papers we had published, which were kind of, I think, provocative, but by the standard of academic published papers, which is, mm-hmm. you know, limited. Um, but then, you know, Twitter became, I think, increasingly used by faculty, uh, not just me, but around, um, you know, the country. 
And uh, and as a student and fellow in resin, I always bit my tongue, and I you know I didn't talk about issues that I knew were issues that people weren't going to agree on, like what's the evidence for a new cancer drug, or uh, should we have financial conflicts of interest, or something like that. But as a faculty member, I felt a little bit more comfortable and freedom to say like what I actually thought, which is that you know you you know listeners of this podcast will know. Um, so and then I guess I was surprised that the response was like so you know not. I don't want to say positive. It was mixed, of course. It's polarized, but it was certainly intense. It wasn't lukewarm. It was an intense response. And so people who agree with me agree with me strongly, and people who disagree with me disagree with me strongly. Um, And in part, you know, you and I know that that I am a a blunt person. Even in person, we're always very direct. True. Except with you, because then I become much more sarcastic, because you're an extremely sarcastic individual. True. Um, uh, But... um, yeah, so I guess I would say I, I would you you would have listened to a very dull interview, mm. um, and you would have um, I guess you you could have gotten something interesting out of me if you asked me some questions. You know, if if I were applying for medical residency, I would have already published uh, a, a research letter in JAMA Internal Medicine on medical reversal. And if you had started asking me about medical reversal, you would have gotten a very interesting, I think, story because we we're already you're kind of doing that work. And so I guess I would have been passionate about that idea. That was an idea we had back then. We hadn't yet uh, like planned to write a book, but we started thinking about it in those years. But if I were to ask you, hey, what are you passionate about? What's really meaningful to you? You would have had a very specific, specific answer, yeah, right? Specific. And that, that kind of gets back to what I said. If you yeah. come into fellowship with a pretty specific interest, usually that predicts that you're going to continue to be passionate about looking for new ideas and searching, asking questions, you know, that kind of that zest for knowledge. What about, do you ask people what books they read? Yes, I do. Some people aren't readers though, right? Some people listen to audiobooks. I guess it's the same thing. Same thing, yeah. um, Yeah, I do. I do. I, but I think a lot of people don't read or listen to anything, listen to books or read books at all. Crummy podcasts like this. But I think (laughs) I would say that that is definitely something for me, that's not only a sign of relaxation, that they have some ability to just wind down but also that they're looking at bigger questions in, in life. You know, mm-hmm. oftentimes the books we read are not usually, you know, um, the emperor of all maladies, right? It, we're looking at other uh, other topics, social issues, you know, bias or, you know, some political issue. And I think that shows that you've got um, a little bit more of a kind of a roundedness, less of a pointiness in terms of, um, you know, kind of a fo- razor focus. Uh, uh, and I, I think, you know, OHSU and where we are in Portland, Oregon, um, you know, we're kind of... I think we're a very liberal, progressive um, city that is looking for people who, you know, are kind of going to be global citizens, you know, people who aren't just going to um, just completely care about, only care about themselves. I just, I, you know, so I think, you know, it's nice to have somebody who's interested in the environment or interested in um, something that really is very important to them. You Why know? don't you tell listeners about your book reading habits, which I know of, but I don't think listeners know. You read a lot outside of work. You, I always see you with a novel, nonfiction book tucked under your arm. You're giving me nonfiction. You're giving me fiction books to read all the time. Some of which I read. Some of which I agree with you are actually pretty good, which I'm always begrudgingly admit. But um, but um, but uh, yeah. What what are your reading habits these days? Well, I feel like this is that New York Times yeah. book review. You yeah, know, like, yeah, I know that. Um, like, oh, it, you know, by the, it's called "By the Book," I think. "By the Book." By the is, book yeah, yeah, that's the section of the Times. And they all say the same thing. You know, a big comfy couch. You know, storm storm outside, and you know, a little little chillier, nice nice little warm you know jacket on. You know, I would say um, there's rarely a time when I don't feel and want to read, um, and that's changed a lot. I was not a reader 
that long ago than I. And um, for some reason, I picked up um, a, a book or two and decided that it was, uh, for some reason, I think it was, all started with The Great Gatsby, and then I read Anna Karenina, and then all of a sudden I said, oh my God, now I see why people love reading. And it just kind of snowballed from there. And now I can't, you know, I've got a pile of books on my desk that I literally cannot get through. Um, but I just think that reading is a critical part of being an intellectual. And I think intellectuals, first of all, are interesting to talk to and be with. And I think generally speaking, they probably make good colleagues. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that based on no data, and I'm really just throwing ideas out there right now. Mm -hmm. But I think that's something. Mm -hmm. People mm -hmm. who don't have ideas and aren't interested in the world, I don't know. I just wonder, you know, how are they going to do um, in academics or how are they going to succeed in Hemonc where there's so much dynamics, you have so many ethical issues. I mean, this field is amazing when it comes to the amount of uh, different aspects of what we do. Mm -hmm. And you feel like, and I 100% agree with you, that if you uh, if you practice for any period of time, even one year in oncology, you're going to encounter at least a dozen situations that um, that would be enough to for the thesis dissertation of a philosopher um, that are really sort of complicated ethical, social, political, Definitely. family dynamic, life issues, life and death issues. And, and if you think you're going to get guidance on those issues from DeVita or Harrison's, um, you are much more likely to get guidance from that issue from Fitzgerald and, and, and Tolstoy, um, you know, as you, put, as you would put it. Uh, yeah. y you find a lot more to draw upon uh, from fiction or from the great works. I think, you know, those – I want people, and I think maybe you do too, I think you want colleagues who struggle with those situations yeah. where there's not a right or a wrong. Yeah, not the people who th are immediately quick to come to an answer and, right. and with certainty. And then move on. Yeah, and they don't think about it. You know, I mean, I, there's something to be said for, you know, not going overboard and being completely obsessed and no, being paralyzed right. by that yeah. un, you know, indecision. But of, you have to agonize about but it. You have to agonize you about have it. You have to, yeah. you got to say, look, is this the right thing to do? i got to really course. make sure that this is the right thing to do for this patient yeah because i think that is caring yeah and also uh in medicine the more you learn about medicine it's not that you agonize less you agonize more you know it's when you're a novice and when you don't know everything that you right. think these are black and white decisions it seems very simple <laughs> yeah, right you look yeah. at nccn it says to do this oh, okay, okay next but yeah you're absolutely right and um and I also think that there's something to be said for saying, I don't know what the right answer is yeah, here. Yeah, I know. You know, I, I, I'm not sure that there's a clear answer right now. And here's what I think is the best answer, but it might not be right or wrong. Mm -hmm. But I like people who kind of are um, masochistic in that sense, is that they just kind of struggle with the world and why we have what we have. Why is it that we have such a, you know, for lack of a better word, a screwed up medical healthcare system, you know, in some ways. Mm -hmm. You know, why, why is that? You know, and why, you know, I would really like to have uh, these are the kind of discussions that I wish I had more time with these applicants is just say hey you know give me your 10,000 foot view of cancer right now what's going on we we doing a good job we're doing a bad job here you know and I think a lot of people would kind of have some some answers but you know I think this takes 
a while to kind of develop, but you have to do a lot of reading and a lot of thinking about what actually are the challenges in our field right now. Mm. Every once in a while, you I, I do kind of ask such a question to an applicant, but I, I kind of feel bad for them sometimes when I ask them because because they also don't know who's who's sometimes they don't know anything about me and they walk into my office and then they start telling me about um, how genome driven cancer medicine is going to benefit the majority of cancer patients and 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 my stomach slowly twists into a yeah. knot as yeah. I say, do you read Markart at all, Jamma twenty eighteen? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, but I, but so, but I feel bad. I and I, I empathize, and so I don't hold them to the standard of, of knowing what I would particularly think. Well, we have a colleague, or well, we we ha- we have a a person you and I both know who um, would ask people, um, why are we not curing cancer? Mm. And um, tough and, question. And how can we cure cancer? Shut up. They yeah. ask this. I mean, you know, not like you yeah, know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it 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 does require that person to have done some real thinking about what is going on on a biological basis that we are not attacking or what are we doing right now that that's not working and i think a lot of people are going to get to that same answer of well it's all genome you know we don't have the right uh, we don't have the right biomarkers yet and know, you know we don't the... we don't have the right drugs and you know i mean that's a pretty standard answer that i don't i wouldn't say is wrong but at least it shows that somebody's thinking about it you know i think if you're going into a field and I say this, you're going to spend the next 30 years of your life doing this, or who knows how many years, God forbid, less than that. If you don't know what you're getting yourself into, I think those pe- sometimes people get very disappointed by um, the burnout. You know, and I think we're facing this a lot now, and I think you could have a whole show on burnout. And I, I kind of want to, yeah. I'm not sure your, your population, uh, your mother and whoever else is listening to this would really be interested in burnout. But I would say mm-hmm. that this is a big issue that really needs to be addressed. Um, I'm not saying that it's an epidemic or that it's a crisis, but there's so much emphasis now on work-life balance and burnout and things like that, that I'll be honest with you, I'm worried. You're worried that it's going to become an epidemic? I'm worried... Um, that I think sometimes people mistakenly go into a field like medicine and even Hemonk not understanding that this is a calling to some extent. This is not an eight to five job. Yeah, yeah. Our patients do not want an eight to five doctor. They want people who are going to be there for them way more than a half a day a week or, you know, on weekend. Oh, I, you know, I, I'm too busy. I can't stick around because I you know, I have to go to my, you know, kid's soccer game. Did you listen to David Steensma's episode? That's exactly what he says. Really? You and Steensma are, are identical on two issues. One, uh, a love of reading outside of oncology and thinking that that's particularly germane to uh, oncology. Um, two, that this is not uh, a nine to five job, uh, that, um, you know, you're going to be need- needed to answer these, some of these questions, you know, whenever those questions may come. Uh, you and Steensma are incredibly aligned on the, on these issues. I think you'd you'd really enjoy that episode. I'll listen to it. Which number is that? Which I, season? I believe it is season one sixty eight, something like that. Wow. Okay, yeah. I'm gonna listen to that. Yeah. Today probably. I guess I'm kind of hurt that you haven't listened to. I listened to every other one except that except one. Except the right, of course. Eighty three episodes and um, probably wow, eighty three. That's amazing. Something like that. Probably like um, maybe two hundred. 200 hours of audio. Wow, that's great. listening pleasure. It could probably get you through your next road trip. But let me ask you a question. What do you think about all this emphasis on burnout? And and let me um, go a little bit step further. Why weren't we talking about this 20 years ago? Uh, my guess is if we were to go back and look at the literature, 
people probably weren't talking they about weren't talking this. about it so is that do you think it wasn't um prevalent at that point or do you think people just weren't cued into it so i guess my it's a two-part question the first the first yeah, the first question is, is is this a problem and then the second question is is if this is a problem now why was it not a problem then so one, I want to make, I want to say that at some point I'm going to get Adam Sifu on this podcast to talk about burnout because he also has kind of, I think, strong feelings about about this whole work-life balance burnout issue, which is kind of, they always always go together. I guess one thing is, I, I don't know if I'll answer your question, but I do think there's some related issues. One is, um, if you looked back at 100 people who finished medical school in 1960, 70, 80, 90, 2000, what is the rate of attrition of those people in providing care for others? So, I mean, that's one metric, right? So if they decide to go mm-hmm. off to be in the industry or whatever if they decide to give up that that caregiver role of being a doctor then presumably something happened that they felt like that was no longer what they wanted to do and, I, and of course it would be like kind of like a Kaplan Meyer curve and and so one wonders if it's actually true that burnout is happening at a higher rate today than it was in the past and you know so I guess I don't know if it's if it's just the fact that other people of a prior generation did they feel this way but not um, talk about it or did they not feel this way did they drop out of medicine or not drop out of it I mean those are kind of we could answer that. Is, can we look at some database? Can't you look at that question? And just ask. That's a, by decade. What is the number of you know physicians in Hemonk that stopped being that stopped practicing? Yeah, yeah, I think you could look at it through a Medicare billing set to see like how many years in a row do they bill Medicare and when did they stop? I mean, something like that, like yeah. a billing data hmm. set. Okay, so that's one question I have. Second question is. Um, which is, is is something about this to be a gap between what is expected and what is necessary to do the job? One of the things I always wonder about is when you see um, that burnout exists in specialties that are known for having controllable hours or perhaps even have lower hours and other specialties that might have higher hours and more uncontrolled hours have less burnout. That kind of data does kind of raise that question in one's mind. Is it that the sorts of people who gravitated into those specialties where they went into it expecting controllable hours and and lower hours are, are shocked to find that no matter how good a field is on average, there will always be days where it is uncontrollable and there'll always be, you know, and, and are those the kinds of people who are more likely to burn out about it? I, I don't know the answer to that question. The other thing is I'm I, I sort of, you know, struggle with, which is that, um, which is the reality, which is that I think there is one thing physicians talk a lot about, which is true, which is that the job of being a physician now is so much different than it was before, in part because that goddamn EMR really, really ruined a lot of what it is to be a doctor. When I started at University of Chicago uh, over just over a decade, no, more than a decade, 14 years ago when I started medical school, we were paper notes. And I will tell you that there were, and were paper notes and paper charts. And one of the jobs of the med student was to find all the charts and assemble them before rounds. You know, So we were running around like crazy. Um, and, and there are a lot of advances through now that we don't need to run around to find the chart. But there were some things that were nice about those good old days, which was when we would round with the attending physician, the, we would, I would remember handwriting my notes and the attending would sign on the bottom. And all of the attending's notes were done the moment rounds ended. There was no paperwork to do in the office. The only thing the attending had to do in the office was think about the cases and maybe read articles and maybe come back for PM rounds or card flip and be able to talk to us about that. Now, when you know, you know, you know what it's like to finish rounds. You have to wait until the notes are um, copied and pasted into the chart before you can co-sign it. We often finish a week of service with 70, 80 notes left to do. The same with my clinic. I'm writing these laborious notes. These notes are garbage. 
there i mean it's not even a fault of any one person that's like when you talk about feedback like one of the feedback is your notes could be better i mean that's like a feedback you can give anybody everyone's notes are garbage <clears throat> yeah and they're garbage in classic ways there are the people who um don't put much of their thought process in so it's garbage in the sense that you know i don't know what you're thinking uh, there are other people who copy and paste the mahabartha into this i say i don't know what that you know i this is a lot of stuff in here i, I can't make sense of it yeah there are other people who um uh they they document too much or too little they talk too much about things and of course the copy paste errors which are rampant yeah and i don't know i mean i think that does that that's part of it that the do- job of a provider is driven by that the epic inbox hasn't helped mm-hmm. uh, every single blood test lab test for hundreds of patients that we may take care of um you know pinging constantly with the result mm-hmm. um you know i don't know are you an inbox zero kind of epic person i mean no, no. I'm trying to be though i know i wish i were i mean they're the rare days in clinic where i finish all my notes the day of the clinic and mm. i you know i say a prayer i'm grateful um, so I wonder, I mean, those things do change the job of being a physician. And then I'd have to say that as an oncologist, we're super lucky because for all the limitations and faults and failures that we will complain about, we at least have pretty good nurse coordinators who can help our patients. When you're an internist and you have to do all this stuff and you don't have, and you don't have those resources because your specialty is not as lucrative, which is the real crux of the issue, uh, it's even more on the faculty and the physician's mm-hmm. job. Yeah, you're right. And that's why you see that a whole, you know, generation of, of internists who, you know, don't want to run an outpatient clinic, period. They only want to do inpatient where it's really controllable. Um, it's got to be in part driven by that. I don't know. Yeah, I think you highlighted some really important issues. One, that people's expectations potentially over time as we've gotten, you know, kind of further from the, you know, kind of good old days of the 1950s and 60s where, you know, your primary care doctor would come to your house and give you an antibiotic. I mean, I think the expectations now uh, are much different. And I think people definitely want to have something in their life besides medicine. It's rare that I meet somebody who's like, you know, this is my first priority in my life. I think a lot of people are like, well, it's very important to me, but my family's as important or my research career or, you know, some other recreational activity is very important to me, you know, and I think we have a tendency now to kind of want to do it all. You know, we want to be able to pack in these incredibly complicated patients into a short period of time, get everything done, get all the, you know, the questions answered, leave by a reasonable amount of time. So we're home for dinner and then we can go to this and go to that. And it's just, it's just too much. At some point in time, you just have to say you can't do all of this. And um, so anyway, our expectations, I think, are changing. And then obviously EMR has, has, has drastically kind of screwed up um, a lot of some of the good parts about medicine, actually even picking up the phone and calling somebody yeah. and saying, hey, I'm seeing your patient today. What do you think? That's such a valuable thing now. Um, but I would say these problems aren't going to get better. They're going to get worse, right? Yeah, so, I think so. So, you know, the question is, is how do we as faculty and people interested in the next generation of doctors, how do we ensure that they have the ability to practice for 20 plus years and uh, be mentally present in an interview with somebody who you're telling them they're dying or by the way, your scan looks worse, you know, and not sitting there thinking about, you know, what's the next thing I have to do when I leave this room because there's five patients waiting for me and, you know, six nurses lined up to talk to me. Um, you know, how do we ensure that the next generation of doctors who I think, believe, I truly believe their heart's in the right place. They want to help people. They want to help people with cancer. Um, how do we ensure that they continue to be good doctors? Um, and, and I don't have a good answer for you. I, I, I do think we people need to adjust their expectations a little bit 
And um, I, I also really, you know, we're also as a society inventing, you know, things to help fix the problems that we've already made. So the EMR is a problem that we kind of brought on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so now we have scribes, right? Of course, right. It's like, you know, what's the next step? You know, um, we're going to have like a robot that, uh, you know, that basically we program a robot to, to do our job for us. And then, you know, we review the tape later or something. <laughs> you know, I, it's just everything's becoming so automa- uh, automated now. And, and it's really it's such a pressure to get everything done quickly. And, and not to have much content and things anymore. But anyway, I'm very worried about this, Vinay. I don't have a good answer for you, but um, I hope that people are thinking of ideas out there because, you know, I, I, I think we all need to be people and human beings and have a life outside of medicine. But I also strongly feel that we owe it to our patients to also put being a physician as a high priority in our lives. You know, I don't think we're doing anybody any favors by uh, um, taking on a job like this and not being there. I think a, a good antidote to burnout is when I look at Tom DeLore. You know, I think about Tom DeLore as somebody who um, is a consummate physician uh, who has high job satisfaction, maybe through the roof. He's anti-burnout. I mean, I, he's like the True. opposite of burnout when you look at Tom DeLore. And, and yet he is always available. I, te- I mean, I send him texts all the time asking him random questions, even when I'm on call, you know, when, for, the, for those super tough hematology questions right. where, where there is no right answer. So I guess I could weigh in with a equally non-valid answer as anyone else. But I still like to get Tom's input and I like to hear his thought process. And, um, and I guess, uh, you know, I think you've I, I mean, we've talked about him before because I think like what does he do that makes his satisfaction very high? Um, he uh, is really, really knowledgeable about hematology. He reads about it constantly. And so one of the reasons you might be burning out is if you don't know the answer to certain clinical situations, Tom knows a lot of the answers, or at least knows the points of uncertainty. Um, two, he, uh, he's always um, he's got the greatest lecture gigs I've ever seen. He's always going up to Alaska, yep. uh, and he always tries to pair work with you know his hobbies like photography and, and take a little break. Um, and uh, but he works really hard, and and he's also a good with the fellows, and he's a good teacher, and uh, and he's good at teaching other faculty members too. But I, I don't think he's uh, afraid to have work. Um, no pun intended, bleed into his exactly. personal time either, right? Exactly, and I yes. think some people really are like, you know, once I leave the hospital, I want to be done. That just isn't always possible, especially if you're an expert and you're in an area where there's only uh, a few other experts. And, you know, you, you got to kind of be on call for the rest of your life to some extent. I guess I'd say that if you go into oncology and think that when you're out of the office, you can get away with not replying to emails and stuff, then you shouldn't go into oncology. This, this is not a field that that's compatible with. I, I mean, agree. You, I agree. maybe emergency, maybe anesthesia. I mean, maybe some shift work kind of field, but yeah. um, not this field. I agree. And it's you just know, not how possible. Do you, how do you pick up on that? Back to your one of your original questions, how do you pick up on that in an interview? In an interview, you know? yeah. I mean, you know, what are, what are some things you could ask? Uh, I, I can't think of anything, you know, because I think ultimately people probably, uh, again, they go into this with, you know, uh, um, a heart that wants to help and I think when they're presented with challenges and conflicts and time constraints I think things sometimes change people change over time too you know they get families or something catastrophic happens in their family or you know things change and I think that reprioritizes things and that's always reasonable you know for people to say hey look I've got a really sick parent or my spouse is really sick I need to take time away from work I mean nobody's gonna um 
fault that person. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, barring any of those major catastrophes, I think, you know, people have to really go into this field thinking, geez, this is actually going to be a large component of my life. Mm -hmm. This is not going to be a small component. This is going to be, I've chosen this, uh, and, and, and I'm excited about it, but boy, this is going to be, uh, tough. But to your point too, you know, how do you find meaning in it? And, you know, you were saying, well, maybe doing a lot of reading and being a true expert in something, um, is one way to kind of prevent that. Um, and that requires a lot of outside of work reading, right? You just continue to focus uh, on the things that are you know, particularly germane to your career that make you a better doctor, but also make you more engaged in the material. So you're not you know, totally frustrated when you have to you know, talk about it again. There was a good article in the New England Journal this week. Um, I was gonna email you. It's um, about uh, a person who kind of talks about the value of um, teaching on Twitter. Mm, Tony Brew. Tony Tony Brew. He's he wrote the article about tutorials. Yes, yeah, I, tutorials. I've read it. So you know, his point is is we need to start asking why again, mm-hmm. not just what. How do you treat this? But why? Why do why do something happen? And, you know, his point was, there's a couple points, at least that I took from one of which is that Twitter actually is not an unreasonable way to learn things. Yes. I, in this situation, maybe I need to stop being so old fashioned. I get yeah, that. Luddite. <laughs> that did open my eyes a little bit. Um, so, you know, Twitter can be these little snippets of information. You know, that's how a lot of millennials, a lot of people like to learn now, right? It's not sitting down and reading a chapter, a dry chapter in a book. It's these kind of quick little snippets. And then the second thing was asking why. Why is it that people, you know, with lung cancer develop brain metastases, whereas people with another solid tumor don't develop brain metastases? Those are the whys. Those are the things that engage us, that continue uh, f- to make us come back to the table and, uh, and, and to be really excited about medicine. Because, you know, Vinay, that's honestly one of the biggest things that keeps me going on a daily basis is, yes, you have that patient interaction and, and that impact. That will always be there. But I think the, the the part that's really exciting, at least for me about academics, is that you know we do have that chance to go to conferences and to hear interesting presentations at Tumor Board, and to to kind of sit back and kind of ask some some more of the whys than than maybe other really busy clinicians who are just kind of grinding it out Monday through Friday, you know, seeing a ton of patients. I'm sure they ask why too. It's nothing against them, but I just think that you know that's one of the benefits of being in academics is you can kind of ask that a little bit more. Since you, since you mock me for my Twitter use quite often, I've noticed over the years. Um, I just want to read you uh, Tony Brio's tweet. I would say it's an addiction. Tweet last night. Um, Twitter has provided a medium for research and writing I'd never have expected. 140, 280 characters is far too few. Fortunately, Prof. D. Francis, that's Daryl Francis, Imperial College London, and Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH, showed me that tutorials can be harnessed as a tool to teach and for me to ask why, link to his paper, that paper you so enjoy, hashtag tutorial, which is a hashtag that I've been an early adopter of and pushed, pushed pretty strongly. So I guess what I'd say is, like I've, like I've been telling you Well, but let for, me ask you this, years, let yeah. me ask you this, Dr. Mm-hmm, Prasad, mm-hmm. is Twitter a substitute for sitting down and reading articles and actually sitting back and looking at some of the original data or published information that's out there. That's my concern is that when you focus on tutorials, you forget that actually learning the history of something in terms of why we are where we're at right now, why do we still, you know, why are we treating people with whatever therapy and non-small cell lung cancer? I'm not sure you're going to get that depth of knowledge from whatever characters. I guess the answer to your question is no. 
It is not a substitute. And it's also... But I think it is a substitute. I think that's why people are using it now. These little things are just like, well, you know, I don't have much time in the day, so I'm gonna. This is gonna be my chance mm. to learn something, and I think that's okay. But I think oncology, in particular, hemonc is such a complicated field. You can't, you can't do a fellowship by you know reading tutorials. And I guess to be even perfectly honest with you, I will admit that even though I care about tutorials and write tutorials, and I think they're important and they help disseminate you know, scientific findings and messages, you know that I'm a believer that a lot of things should also be, or perhaps first be, published as peer-reviewed journal articles. And only then, after I've published it, will I do the tutorial about it. But I will go to those pains. So I still I still have a foot in your, in your camp, the Luddite camp, which is that you got to read the articles. Just right now, you see behind me. I, I print a stack of articles and I keep them at my bedside where they accumulate um, and then they do get read and then I like to try to publish the articles, try to publish ideas into peer review literature and then use Twitter to amplify the ideas. My concern is, I think that that's a, that's a really good way to put it, is that if you if you are uh, a listener of this podcast and you you know just take Vinay Prasad's perspective for it, you know that's very reasonable, don't get me wrong, again you can't read every article. And we rely, people rely on you to kind of interpret it. But I, I think there is something still to be gained by looking at the article. Of course, they should read you know? it themselves, yeah. And, um, but it's better that I interpret it than all the conflicted KOLs who are interpreting it for them. Well, that's, that, might be, that might be true. At least it's a, it's a balance. And um, you're like Fox News, fair and balanced. And I would say also <laughs> that um, you know, this is one of the also challenges of an education is when you uh, want to teach a PowerPoint presentation on a very big topic, like let's say lung cancer. Mm-hmm. There is now, I've given up. I've, I've given up on- You can't fit in one lecture. You can't. No, it's impossible. Can't, yeah. And now I've just said to fellows, look, you need to do some reading on your own about this. I cannot teach you all of lung cancer in 50 minutes or, you know, or even in two lectures. And we now know certainly from there's education literature that, you know, how short your attention span is and you start- you know, as soon as you start, you know, once you're on the seventh or tenth PowerPoint slide, everybody's checked out. Um, and so we have to come up with innovative ways of continuing to engage people in terms of keeping their attention span um, uh, long enough that they can learn something rather than a tutorial. You know, uh, people like you, you know, you get bored very quickly, right? You know, after 30 seconds, you're already looking at something else. Mm-hmm. You know, to some extent, it, it is a grind. You gotta, you gotta sit down and you gotta grind through it and, and, and read some of this stuff. And y- it's not just gonna be, unfortunately, just, you know, dispensed like a, like a Pez dispenser where you get a nice little, you know, nice little piece of candy and you eat it and, it, and it's, it's yummy. Um, I have to say, I'm not conflicted by Pez, by the way. I'm not uh, in not, any way promoting Pez and nor am I sponsored by them. You're not big Pez. Um, okay, last <laughs> question for you and then I'll let you go. Um, you, you're going to get through the fellowship season. You're going to put that, that match list out there. We're going to get some good fellows joining the program. And what's your advice to the fellows on day one? What do they need to do the first year? Wow, that's a really excellent question. I would say um, each year of fellowship, which for most people is three years for Hemonk, there should be a little bit of a different focus. That first year really is survival. Get through the clinical care don't focus so much on what am I going to do 10 years from now, five years from now, but really focus on learning. Get as much as you can out of each rotation. Do a lot of reading outside of work. Always walk around with an article in your pocket. 
always walk around with something on your iPhone, you know, whatever it is that you're always learning. Um, and then you, you do have to make time for yourself. You have to figure out a way to come up with strategies so that you can continue to be a uh, very busy clinician or researcher or whatever, but also have time for yourself. So that's an important skill that I think a lot of us are still trying to learn how to do. Um, and then I would say that um, this year in particular, I handed out a um, a picture of, uh, it was in the um, National Geographic. It was of a, a gentleman who is called a Bayaku. And it's a man who is in uh, Haiti, and his job is to clean out latrines. Um, so it has a picture of him covered in feces. And um, I handed it out to them, and I said, there are going to be times and moments when you're going to feel like you're the Bayaku of our division, where you're the one who's cleaning up after everybody else. But I tell them, what you're doing has significant meaning. Even when you feel that way, it means a lot to patients when you're answering that phone at 3 p.m., 3 a.m., rather, and they're nauseated or they don't know what pill to take because they've got a handful of stuff. Um, you're going to feel like you're the, you know, the one that's at the bottom of the totem pole, but that work is very valuable and meaningful. And you know, never lose perspective and lose sight of that. And so I think that's an important principle is that you know, there are, it's inevitable that you're going to get very tired, but to realize that that work has meaning and that things will change and this will pass. You know, you're going to look back 20 years from now and probably pretty fondly on your fellowship and say, boy, that was hard, but I'm glad I did it, and I'm glad I did it the way I did it. That's well put. I guess I certainly look back with a lot of fondness on my fellowship. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. All right, Dr. Setnar, thank you for your time. This was, this was a discussion that was supposed to be about what you look for in an application, but was a far-ranging, far-ranging discussion, as, as good discussions often go. And, um, and I think the plenary session listeners We'll be grateful to hear all these pearls. Thanks all, for having me again. All three and of them. This is Plenary Session. No, it's you're listening to. Oh, you have been listening to Plenary Session. That's right. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>